0: Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey,
1: Hey, Bays. This This is Alicia. This is Katie. And this is Paige.
2: And we are Crime Bay. Bay. We are a true crime podcast, bringing you at least one episode a week.
1: And we are going to cover a wide range of topics, uh, varying from the more known, well-known stories, your serial killers, to the more lesser-known stories, such as... Supernatural myths, legends, cryptids. Yes.
2: We know you guys want to know about Mothman. Mm-hmm.
1: Who doesn't? Um... And we're going to be fun and humorous at the appropriate times, too. And sometimes the inappropriate And times. sometimes <laughs> inappropriate.
2: We got to make ourselves laugh to keep from crying, you know? sure you follow us on Instagram,
1: TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Crime Bay Podcast.
0: Thank you so much. We look forward to uh, making you a bay. Thank you, bay. Hasta la pasta.
3: Due to the graphic nature of some of the topics we will be touching on, listener discretion is advised.
4: Welcome back, everybody. It's a beautiful day here in the neighborhood. I'm Lisa. I'm your host here at I for My podcast, where we bring you the crazy, the wild, the gruesome, the sad cases. And I'm here with Jules and Matt today. Say hello. Love y'all. And today, Jules, I think you'll do a way better introduction than I will, but we have a very, very special guest and we're super excited. We've had so many guests on recently and we absolutely love it. There is a personal connection in this case, which makes it even more crazy. So Jules, I'll let you take it away.
1: Thanks, Lee. We have our special guest, Lindsay, and I'm going to pass it to her in one moment. But I know I say this all the time. This case is just wild and there's so many levels to it. Like I said, we have our special guest, Lindsay, here today. And she is going to tell us about her connection to this case. But first, I want to give a special shout out. We were talking about this kind of in the pre-show. There is a really great episode of Snapped, season 16, episode 7, that covers this case. And yeah, so Lindsay, friend of the pod, why don't you
2: tell us how you are connected to this case? Hey, happy to be here. Very excited. Longtime listener, first-time caller. I have a personal connection to this through my dad. So Ben, who is the subject of today, and my dad met, they were, I guess, 12 or 13, middle school age. Ben was a guy from New York City. He weekend in the Poconos, which up in northeastern Pennsylvania, but that's where my dad lived. So their vacation home was in my dad's neighborhood. They hung out weekends and all through middle school, high school, into adulthood. And eventually Ben moved up there. And so him and my dad kind of palsed around, and uh, they were really close, especially with my dad's cousins. They were little three musketeers, I guess. But Ben was supposed to be the best man in my parents' wedding. But separate from my mom, Ben just didn't think my dad was ready to get married. They were only 24, and he didn't think it was my dad's time. My dad said, "Mm, tough shit, and I am here to help tell the tale today. Because my dad ignored his advice. So that's my connection.
3: Got to that.
2: And I have some other anecdotes as we get into it. But
1: yeah, thanks for that, Lindsay. And as Lindsay mentioned, we are talking about the tragic story of Ben Amato. And Lindsay's going to kind of help me tell this tale here and jump in with some personal stories. It's really exciting. And we have three murders to discuss in today's episode. So I'm going to jump right in. As Lindsay had mentioned, this whole cluster of events takes place in and around the Pocono Mountain area of Pennsylvania, and that's kind of in the Northeast. We're going to start in 2001. It was November 16th, and Ben Amato had not been seen or heard from in several days. Police were called to conduct a wellness check, as this behavior was unusual for Ben. When the police Got to Ben's house, they found the door locked, which again was an unusual thing, especially I think kind of in that area of Pennsylvania. People are just very trusting and don't necessarily always lock their doors. When the police found the door locked, they called Ben's friend Dick Hoffman to the scene. Very small town vibes is what I gathered from that. When Dick gets there, he checks a particular window that he knows that Ben always leaves unlocked and that window was locked. Red flags popping up all over the place. Police eventually force their way into the home and walk into a horrific sight. Police find Ben lying dead at the bottom of his basement stairs, lying in a pool of his own blood. We do have pictures of this. They're graphic. We'll post them with the other episode content we have, but it's just tragic. At first, the police, Dick Hoffman, and even Ben's stepdaughter think that Ben may have committed suicide as he had made two previous attempts. However, when the autopsy confirmed that Ben had been beaten to death, suspicion turned to Ben's ex-girlfriend, Cheryl. I hope you all have the Noodle dock up because there are also pictures of Ben and Cheryl, and Cheryl is certainly a character. Let's talk more about Ben and Cheryl. Cheryl's father owned a junkyard in the area, and Ben liked tinkering with cars and was often at the junkyard looking for parts and, you know, doing junkyard things. Cheryl's father introduced Ben to Cheryl and the two started dating in January of 1999. Two things to know. Ben is 20 years older than Cheryl, which is kind of a large gap, but, you know, to each his own.
3: Jules, can I make a quick, small little side note on this picture of Cheryl?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a great
3: one. Uh, she, yeah, man, she looks like ready for this. Okay. You guys are looking for those of you who can't visually see, you got to go look. Richard Ramirez's hair and John Wayne Gacy's face. Tell me, that's not what I'm seeing right now.
1: Truly, truly.
3: Yeah, I th- the blend up two really weird looking people to make a really weird looking person. And I just, wow.
1: Yes. And I mean, to be fair to Cheryl, that is not the most flattering picture. However, the rankings yeah, were slim. So,
3: you I'm know. hoping isn't her IG profile pic, but.
1: You like know, there. probably not. I think this was when later on she was being taken into police custody. Yeah, but yeah. We'll get there. He wouldn't swipe
4: right on this beauty.
3: That would explain the scowl. And I have to honestly say at least, no, I don't think I would swipe right. I think I would swipe delete that app at that point. Honestly,
2: <laughs> Break the phone at that point. Yeah. Sage, feed <laughs> yourself.
3: Set my house on fire and leave the state at that point if I'm considering it. But yeah, okay.
1: Anyway. As I mentioned, Ben was 20 years older. Another thing to note was Cheryl was a teen mom. Nothing wrong with that, just pointing it out for context. So, when her and Ben had started dating, she had a 12 year old son named Gregory. Like I said, no judgment against teen moms, but just to put in context, by the time that her and Ben had gotten together, she had this son who was already 12. Another thing to note I did mention that Ben had a stepdaughter. And in fact, he had three stepchildren from a previous marriage. Ben was married to someone prior who had children from their own previous marriage. And he remained close with those children throughout the relationship with their mom when that ended and kind of into eventually the end of his life. January 1998, Ben and Cheryl start dating. People report that they were a very outdoorsy couple. They enjoyed snowmobiling, ATVing, which is kind of common for that area. And Ben also had a really good relationship with Cheryl's son, Gregory. He was known to buy both Gregory and Cheryl anything they wanted. Six to seven months into the relationship, Cheryl started to pull away a little bit. At the time, Cheryl also finds out she is pregnant with Ben's child. She hadn't told him, and she calls off the relationship. She's planning to keep the baby, and she does not want Ben to be a part of the child's life. It seems to me if you would feel that way, then you maybe shouldn't be having a child with someone anyway, but that's either here or there. Ben obviously had a hard time with this. Not only was he losing his girlfriend, he was losing this child, which would be his first biological child. And not only that, he was losing the relationship that he had built with Gregory, and so there was a lot going on. The child was eventually born in November of 1998. And it was during this time of struggle that Ben had made the two suicide attempts, which I had mentioned earlier. He had a lot going on, a lot of grief from loss of the relationship, not being allowed to see his child, all those sorts of things. That was 1998 in November. By 2001, Ben had seemed to be getting back on his feet. And he was doing better. He was seeing a doctor, taking meds, etc. So 2001 is where we started our story. And when police first found the body, that was a thought that they had. You know, was this another suicide attempt? However, like I had mentioned, the autopsy reported that was not the case. In June of 2001, five months before Ben's murder, Cheryl filed harassment charges against Ben. She felt that if the case went in her favor, there was no way Ben could get even partial custody. Was there harassment really going on or was this more of a part of her thought that She wanted full custody. She didn't want Ben to have any part of the child's life. The case doesn't go in her favor. And in the courtroom, in the presence of many other people, Cheryl says, what do I have to do to get him to leave me alone? Kill him. Not the best thing to be saying aloud.
3: Wait, and she said that sarcastically? Like, what do I have to do to get him to leave me alone? Kill him?
1: Right. And this was all right before Ben was found dead.
3: Fuck soldier boy. She was the first rapper to ever declare it in front of a judge. Not only that, I'm going to kill him, but said it in front of multiple people. In the courtroom still. The she court-
1: it's not like you were even outside talking on the side to your counsel. You were in the courtroom and said this in the presence of many people.
3: Yeah, Cheryl was the first. Good for her. Wow. Ballsy.
1: Yeah. Obviously, that statement in itself is just very absurd, but I do want to point out that Cheryl had no actual case. As I kind of alluded to, this was all about getting custody. The judge in the case said something to the effect of, you live in a small town. Ben driving by your house is not harassment. It's like, that's how he needs to go to the grocery store, to the post office. He's not going out of his way to harass you, to drive by your house. That was that. And that was right before Ben had been found dead. On November 20th, six days After Ben's body was found, police have a warrant and are searching Cheryl's house looking for boots, prints that they found at the scene of the crime. They were looking for the match. Unfortunately, their search turns up nothing. With so much suspicion, police start digging through records, reports, anything that they can find to get something on Cheryl. They think, okay, even if we can't charge her for murder yet, we want to charge her with something. We want to get her into custody. There's too much pointing in her direction to just leave her to the general public. In their searching, police find that Cheryl had reported a break-in and robbery of her home three months before Ben's body was found. Not only does Cheryl file these burglary charges, she also names the two people who committed the crime. That might be chopped up to small town, but we'll get into that. She says April and Nathaniel broke into my house, they stole these things, etc. But Just kidding. For no apparent reason, Cheryl then withdraws those charges. Police find this to be strange and they start to dig a little deeper. They realize that this very same Nathaniel is in jail for unrelated charges, so they go and seek him out. When they entered the room, police say something to the effect of Do you know why we're here? Nathaniel says, To talk about the woman who paid us to kill that guy. I'm going to say that again. Police talk to Nathaniel while he's in jail and say, do you know why we're here? And he says to talk about the woman who paid us to kill that guy.
3: I'm not an attorney, but I wouldn't recommend saying that.
1: No bueno. Nathaniel goes on to tell the police that, yes, Cheryl paid him in April to kill Ben. However, Nathaniel and April weren't necessarily astounding citizens. They blow the money that Cheryl paid them on drugs, and then they go back to Cheryl's house for more money. The original money that was supposed to be their prize for murdering Ben, they blew that on drugs. Apparently, she had $6,500 laying around in her safe, which I just thought was interesting. I never have a dollar on me, like one singular dollar at all yet alone $6,500 laying around in my safe. I thought that was interesting. Cheryl files the charges of burglary. Then Daniel says, I'll tell them you paid us to kill Ben if you don't drop these charges. So Cheryl drops the charges. Police are able to corroborate this story, and on July 23rd, they arrest Cheryl for solicitation to commit homicide. Crazy. Lots of layers to this story, and we're just at the top. Because of the timing of Nathaniel's arrest, police know that he and April did not actually kill then. So we're still working on that piece of the puzzle. They were hired for it originally. They never went through with it.
3: Wait a minute. They took the money, claimed they did it, and then blew the money on drugs?
1: I don't know if they told her that they did it and they just didn't or what the case was, but th- they couldn't have done it because Nathaniel was in jail on other charges at the time.
3: Online was locked. Yeah, that, I mean, wow.
2: Yeah, I, there's a lot. When I was a kid, so 2001, I was nine or 10. And this is the part where I first learned about what happened. Because I remember my dad talking on the phone to someone and saying, hit men and being nine, I didn't know what that was. So I learned what a hitman was because of this story. You'll see how it ends. But I think at the time, people thought that's what happened, that she paid people to kill him.
3: Jesus Christ. It's funny. I learned what a hitman was when my dad came home from work one day too, but different story I won't tell anybody about.
1: I think that's another episode, Matt.
3: <laughs> another episode for another time. Let's continue before I incriminate anyone.
1: Yes. Only yourself. You're allowed to incriminate.
3: Only myself. Yes.
1: So it was ruled that Nathaniel and April could not have been responsible for Ben's death. We're still trying to figure that one out. Cheryl is telling anyone and everyone that she was framed for this. And to that, I inserted a major eye roll because I just can't with her. But before Cheryl can even be tried for the solicitation of murder, another crime takes place. Trigger warning here. This whole episode could be riddled with them, but this one is pretty upsetting.
4: Also pay attention to the dates, everybody, because May.
1: I know. A lot of bad shit happens in May, and that's where we find ourselves in the next series of unfortunate events here. May 4th, 2004, Kristen Fisher is found dead in her home. It is an apparent suicide, as she is found with a rope around her neck. Seven-month-old Kaylee Fisher, who is Kristen's daughter, was found drowned in the bathtub, which is just horrible. They first ruled the scene a murder-suicide. Until investigators start to dig a little bit further and see that the slack of the rope found around Kristen's neck just isn't right. And I don't know what that means because I'm not a crime scene investigator, but they can tell that something's off. The way that the rope is secured, the slack in it, and now we have foul play in the mix. And once foul play is in the mix, the immediate suspect becomes Kristen's ex-boyfriend and Kaylee's father. Which is, anyone have a guess?
3: Dun, dun, dun.
1: Gregory Rowe Kunkel, Cheryl's son. Yeah, my head's
3: exploding. There's too many people involved. They're all fucked up.
1: Yeah, yeah. This case is tragic.
3: This feels like it was Ozark Part 2 type thing, where everybody in town is somehow a little involved and a little fucked up.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's very small town vibes, and I know that there are many small towns that are wonderful and lovely and don't have Mothers and sons who are suspects in murder cases. But this one definitely has that element. Some background on this new development. Greg and Kristen were dating. And once Kristen found out that she was pregnant, Greg did not want her to keep the baby. Therefore, he felt he was not required to pay child support. He didn't want the baby. Kristen did. She had the baby. The couple had an upcoming trial in family court to get the child support. Payment settled, all that kind of stuff. Kristen's mother knew that Greg was coming by the house that day, the day that they found Kristen and Kaylee. So that was a red flag pointing us right in his direction. Also, Greg's current girlfriend ratted him out. I feel like he's just not a great boyfriend. She told police that Greg had just purchased rope, the very same rope that was found around Kristen's neck. On June 4th, a m- literally a month later to the day, Greg was arrested for the double murder of Kristen and Keeley Fisher. This case, has a lot going on.
3: What a crazy ass family. I want to know what they're all eating and I want to avoid it.
1: Yes, definitely. I feel like there's something in the water. Cheryl had just gotten out on bail for the solicitation charges, which I would like to know what the amount of that bail was. Wait a minute. $500. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Like she had it. She was ready. She knew they were going to come get ready to roll. Yep.
3: I was going to say, she posted bail that day, it was literally like, Yeah, I got you. Hang on. Pulled it out of where?
1: Well, she got out on bail for the solicitation charge, but was now back in jail because she had violated um, King's her bail because she has hampered with evidence in Greg's case, which they didn't get into the full details on. But either way, Cheryl just can't get her act together. Now, Cheryl and Greg are both in jail. It's on a little mother-son outing, and investigators are starting to put some pressure on Greg. They figure he might be an easier target. He might crack. In an attempt to lessen his own sentence, Greg spills the teeth in the police. I don't think it took much. Maybe growing up with Cheryl, he was kind of like, if I can screw her over to save myself, I'm doing it.
3: Anyone you can screw, I can screw better.
1: Right. He tells the police that he had actually driven Cheryl to Ben's house a few days before his body was found. Greg claims that he thought Cheryl was just breaking in, not committing murder. He was fine when he thought he was dropping her off for a break-in, just a little B&E, but when it came to murder, he was not aware of that. Cheryl had instructed Greg to drop her off, drive away, and come back in two hours. When he picked her up, Cheryl told Greg to take the back roads home, and on their ride, Cheryl is taking off her clothes and throwing them out the window. Another fun mother-son excursion. I don't know what she left behind, and, but...
3: Small-town world, small-town PA, you know.
1: Anyway, Greg also stated that Cheryl threw a baseball bat which they ended up finding to be the murder weapon, out of the window on their drive. Unfortunately for Greg, Cheryl had him purchase pepper spray, which was used in the crime. With all this information from Greg, Cheryl is re-arrested and charged with Ben's murder.
3: People keep fucking each other over. Right.
1: But, it's like, uh, fucking your mother, your
3: son. Yeah. The cops came were like, it was her. They literally didn't say a fucking thing. We're like,
1: I have this a little bit further in the case, but I think it's relevant to what we're saying. The whole time that this case is in trial, Greg never refers to Cheryl as his mom or mother or mom. It's always Cheryl, which I think is very interesting and maybe kind of shows what kind of relationship they had. Very telling. And I thought that was interesting. Jumping back, investigators now have a clearer picture of how Ben was murdered, so I wanted to touch on that before we discuss Cheryl's trial and sentencing. What investigators piece together is Ben was pepper sprayed, and we mentioned the pepper spray that she made Greg buy. Ben was pepper sprayed at the top of his basement stairs and hit with the baseball bat. He then falls down the stairs and is hit again at the bottom of the stairs. Another sickening detail I left out earlier so that we could disclose it now with the full picture. When Greg dropped Cheryl off on the night she killed Ben, he noted that no cards were in the driveway. Meaning, Cheryl was hiding in the house waiting to ambush Ben when he got home. Ben was not home when Greg dropped Cheryl off. She broke in and was waiting in there for him because his car was not in the driveway when Greg dropped her off. That just really bothered me. I'm always afraid that somebody is in my home. And this was unfortunately Ben's reality. In January of 2006, Greg is charged with double murder, Kaylee and Kristen, as we mentioned earlier. And he is serving life for those. Even though he ratted out his mom and threw her under the bus, it does matter. He's still serving life. On February 6th of 2007, Cheryl's trial begins. Greg testifies against Cheryl and, as I mentioned, only refers to her as Cheryl during the trial. Never mom, never by mom. And it's kind of creepy, but it's also just kind of telling. Cheryl is still claiming that someone else killed Ben, and her defense cites the fact that there was no physical evidence tying her to the scene. Her defense is also trying to rip apart Greg's testimony, Stating that he was lying to the police so that he would have a lesser sentence on his own double murder charge. We should insert the audio clip But Bonnie Tyler. I need a hero. We get a hero in a man named Jerry. And Jerry was Cheryl's longtime family friend. And Jerry kind of ties in because after Cheryl killed Ben, she called Jerry and asked him to go destroy the baseball bat she chucked out of the window on her jo- little joy ride with Greg. If you were going to have him go back and destroy it, why did you throw it out the window in the first place? But it's irrelevant. And what I love about this is she doesn't say, Jerry, come with me. I have to go get this bat. I throw out the window. I need your help to do it and destroy it. She basically just said, nope, go do it. I'm not going to help you. This is your errand now. It's not on me. But either way, Jerry gets spooked. And finally, Cheryl does eventually go back to the baseball bat with him. And she lights it on fire. Jerry tells the police all of this. So there is more aside from just Greg's testimony that puts her with the murder weapon. And we get another surprise cameo as April of Nathaniel and April, who were originally solicited for murder, She reappears. And apparently she was Cheryl's friend, which I don't know if that helps or hurts the fact that she had solicited her and Nathaniel for murder. Just thought it was interesting. Before Cheryl is arrested for the murder for higher charge, she calls April to her house and makes this very strange recording. I was going to pull the audio from the Snapped episode. I don't know that that is illegal, but I'm not because it, it wasn't recording well. But Definitely go to the Snapped episode to hear it because Cheryl is essentially feeding April these lines saying, did you say or do anything to get back at me after I hired you and Nathaniel to kill Ben? And she's like, no, I can't believe you're a murder suspect. The whole thing is very scripted, very creep for many reasons. Go check out that episode of Snapped. Fun fact, April is actually from the town that I grew up in, which is fitting. April 14th, 2007, Cheryl is charged with Ben's murder six years after his body was found. When the verdict was read, Cheryl gasped as if she could not fathom that she was found guilty.
3: I'm all the way up until the last moment. Right.
1: Like, I don't know if it was the delusion she created in her own head, but she literally gasped when the guilty verdict was read, which I thought was-
3: her attorney, like, leaned were like, no, bitch, it was you.
1: <laughs> right, fought the good fight, there's nothing more.
3: Yeah, you're guilty.
1: On June 20th of 2007, Cheryl is sentenced to life without parole. She has, in her own delusional way, filed multiple appeals and has had no success with those appeals. That is the crazy case of Ben, Amato, and Cheryl, and Gregory, and all of the various cast of characters. I do have some questions. I want Lindsay to have time to tell us any stories and then just hear everybody's thoughts. I was wondering, if you guys think that Greg's sentence should have been lessened for the information that he gave to the police? Because it seems like he was promised less and received life. He didn't get less for spilling the tea on his own mother. Do we think that should have been the case?
3: And did more evidence come up to support the fact that he had that he had done it though, after he had originally said that he had, before he implicated his mom?
1: I don't, you're, can you rephrase the question? The yes. rope you mean, right?
3: Yes. Thank you, Lindsay. Yeah. That came up after he had already said, I it wasn't me, you know, I like, tried to feign innocence. So I'm like, Oh, dude, you'd have probably been fried three ways from Sunday either. Maybe a couple of years and about the a life sentence. They knew that he was guilty, and
1: that's why he was in jail. Once he was in jail is when the police started pressing him, and then that's when he spilled on his mom. He knew that he was fucked, and he was hoping if he spilled, he would be less fucked, but he wasn't. Do you think that's fair? Do you think if they promised him a lesser sentence, he should have been given one? I mean, he killed... His child and the mother of his child. What does anybody think? Lisa, you look disgusted.
4: I think it was just the murder, kiss bomb that we were talking about, baby, but I think they're two separate entities. So, yeah, they're semi connected, but you shouldn't get off of the crime that you've committed that's heinous because you gave information of your mom's crime that was also heinous, but a different crime. You know what I mean? I feel like, yeah, different entities, if the information he was providing was that he was involved with the only case and that was Ben's case, then I think that would be a little different.
1: Right. So maybe if it wasn't for Kristen and Kaylee and he was just like, yeah, I drove her there. I drove her home. I bought the pepper spray. Maybe if he gave all that up, that could have been overlooked. I'm not saying I think he should have had a lesser sentence. I just think if that was never on the table, would he have spilled? Lindsay, do you have any thoughts
2: about that? Yeah, I would agree. If he had said it, again, without Kaylee and Kristen's death, and it was more to lessen, you know, his sentence for being an accomplice to murder. That's one thing, because I think it's just being more, not being benevolent, but you want to help, versus he only said it to save himself when you bought the rope, totally unrelated, and if that's the mother of your child and your child, whether or not you go to family court, it is what it is, and killing and premeditating, I think he got what he deserved, and he'll rot, and I hope he does.
1: My other question was, do you think that Greg would have done what he did with Kaylee and Kristen if this crime with his mother had not ever occurred? Kaylee and Kristen and that horrible incident was 2004, and the crimes with Ben took place in 2001, so three years later. Do we think that Greg would have thought i'm gonna sneak in i'm gonna do this i'm gonna make it look like a suicide a murder suicide if he didn't have this wacko mother who three years earlier did the same thing i don't have an answer and it's okay if nobody else does but i just thought at that point in 2004 she was still getting away with it essentially i feel like that might have contributed like my mom can do it i can do it
4: i think when you're raised by uh a Crazy person, you're more inclined to do crazy things. If you were raised by a woman who's at hinge regardless if she killed someone or not, I feel like he was probably prone to violence more so than the average individual. I do think it helped him think like, okay, she can do it, I can do it. You know?
1: Does anyone else have thoughts on that?
3: I'm thinking about it from the mindset of a sick person is a sick person. But it's a nature versus nurture argument. They're brought up into an environment where that's acceptable. I do blame some of it on his environment. Yeah, but at the same time, does that make him any less culpable? No, he killed two people, including a child, his own child. So fuck you, man. Sorry, you had a tough upbringing, but you still killed two people. You know, a lot of people have tough upbringings that don't kill people.
1: I agree. Those are good points. Lindsay, were you going to say something?
2: I was just going to agree. I think... Gregory didn't have all the pieces together. Let's just say, based on his upbringing, and when I read this question, I never even really thought of that. Looking at the timeline, I guess, and I I just can't even imagine the thought process that either of them went through. And then it makes you wonder what was Cheryl's upbringing. I mean, probably not by a murder, but still, if that kind of behavior is okay and acceptable, it's not like her moral compass going north either. So I would agree with what everyone is saying for sure. Those are all good points. I have a question that we obviously will never know the
1: answer to, but do you guys think that Greg Gregory, I don't know why I switched his name midway through, so apologies to whatever he chooses to go by, but do you think that him and Cheryl helped each other in their crimes? Did he really just drop for off? Did he really just buy the pepper spray with Ben's situation? And did Cheryl have anything to do with, even if it was just the planning of his murdering of Keely and Kristen? I think it's likely because, as we mentioned, neither of them necessarily had the best moral compass.
3: I would call it criminal facilitation. They didn't necessarily participate in the crime actively, but it's like, why do you need me to buy you rope? Why do you need me to buy you pepper spray? My mom came to me and was like, yo, can you buy me some pepper spray? I'd be like, sure. You feel threatened at work or what's the issue? Something we can take care of. If she asked me to buy a rope, I'd be like, okay, why? <laughs> what for? It's not like a normal thing to ask. Granted, I don't know. Maybe their family was. It's like, hey, can you go buy me a 38 special? I don't know. Sure. But I, that's, that's a little strange. And vice versa. If She gave him a ride. You didn't, you didn't know what was going on. Where do you think he was going? On a date? I don't know. I would have added a criminal facilitation charge to their litany of crimes they committed. Yes
4: i agree i think they were
1: into included yeah it just seems like especially the fact that greg had made note whether consciously or subconsciously that when he dropped cheryl off there was actually no one there i feel like the fact that he he realized that should have been a red flag well i guess he thought she was breaking in i don't know i mean definitely from a planning point but it seems these two are just not a good match.
2: Yeah, I almost wonder, did he agree to take Cheryl there as almost a form of blackmail and future reference? Like, clearly, like 2001, Kaylee, his child, wasn't even a blip on the radar. But he never called Cheryl mom during his trial or her trial. Clearly, this is not a typical relationship. She clearly walked into the car with the baseball bat in her hand and pepper spray that he purchased. So was he doing it almost like to have a blank check to cash in the future? I helped you with this. You know, clearly no love lost between them. And if you're that messed up in the mind, who knows if he did it thinking he could use that against her in the future. That's kind of what I'm thinking, like hearing conversation. Yeah, that's a good point.
3: It's a very interesting point, honestly, especially like these guys seem like they're already pretty devious. It doesn't seem too far fetched to suggest that they might hold leverage over one another and be like, eh, yeah, I'll help you, but we need something from you as well.
4: That's basically what I was thinking as well. It sounds like there was no question about what was going to happen in either one of those cases by either one of that. Maybe they weren't directly involved, but I think getting those materials he knew okay this is what mom got planned or the idea you know she's gonna go try to kill this man
1: yeah that's something i didn't think of but a good point so the last planned question i have and then we can kind of just go off do we think i for and i was met greg is serving life and I, I didn't write that he had life without parole or what's the possibility of parole so i'm not sure so we have, have to take that with a grain of salt and then Cheryl is serving life without the possibility of parole, even though she keeps finally all these freaking appeals. So what do we think? Are those fair sentences? I think they're fair. Put them away. Definitely. Anyone
3: else have thoughts? Lindsay, okay. after you, I'll give you your chance. Cause you know, the case better than all of us, it feels like. So by all means, tell us what you think.
2: Yeah. So because you mentioned that, I just Googled it. Greg actually got two life sentences one for Kaylee and then one for Kristen. And I didn't realize Kristen was (laughs) only 17 years old. This is 2015 that he tried to appeal, but it was upheld both life sentences. So I'm going to guess if you have two life sentences, that's probably without parole.
1: Yeah, I would assume so. I didn't know that it was two and that she was only 17 at the time. I don't imagine Greg
2: was that much older,
1: right? He was 12 when they first started. Dating and that was 1998. So I'm not good at math, but 24, 2024, that's six years later. So he maybe was 18. Yeah. Interesting. It seems like neither of these two will see the outside of jail ever in their lives, which I think is the ultimate sentence. So, Lindsay, do you have stories that you want to add on or anything you want to go back to and
2: tie in? Yeah, just in preparing for this and talking to my dad, I guess just the type of person Ben was, you know, just hearing my dad had a lot of stories and some of which are funny for me to hear, but not necessarily serving the purpose, but just his character. He left New York City as a young adult because he didn't like that way of life. So moving to the Poconos for people who are unfamiliar. It's definitely much more rural mountains. It's really popular with people from New York as a vacation spot just because it's right across the New York state border. You mentioned he liked working on cars and stuff. He was actually a mechanic for the New York City Department of Sanitation. So he basically moves to the Poconos to escape the rat race to a place he's gone since he was a kid and loved. And it's just so unfortunate that the people in his life that were from there again no reflection on the poconos but him moving there significantly altered the course of his life and you mentioned he was married before i don't really know much about that i just know that it did not end well i believe his first wife he caught her cheating on him with a high school kid yeah yikes
1: that's another podcast episode (laughs) Yeah. yeah
2: but he was just a really cheerful person. My dad like, can close his eyes and still hear him laughing. I don't think I've ever met Ben. If I did, I was really young because um, my grandparents had left the Poconos by the time I got older. Just a nice person, worked hard, always laughing, would do anything for you. And it's just so tragic. I feel like that's the theme of this, but yeah, very sad and unfortunate tragic because what could have been? I always think about their child together if she was three in 2001, she'd be mid-20s now. I can't yeah. at math, but...
1: That's a good point. It doesn't mention anything about where that child is today. And to the points you are making earlier, Lindsay, I'm glad that you have some more insight on Ben because we've talked about this before on the podcast, but what's always a shame is that we know a lot of these cases based on the perpetrator of the crime and not the person who is the victim. And there were, unfortunately, a lot of victims in this case. It's not so much about the fact that Cheryl has to spend the rest of her life in jail. If you obey choices, you have consequences. But Ben didn't make a choice maybe he chose to go on a date with you, but no one would ever think that that would end by being murdered in your own house by someone who you loved and trusted. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's helpful. Was there anything else that you got from your dad that you wanted to share?
2: Nothing specific, just his personality. He was a volunteer firefighter too. I don't know if that says something about him being willing to put himself in harm's way to help others, I think that's really reflective of his character. It's just so unfortunate and sad. And just talking to my dad, you can kind of hear him reflecting and the emotion in his voice. So yeah, I'm glad I got to share this story and a little bit more about Ben. Justice for Ben. Does anyone else have thoughts about the case in general,
1: things that stood out? As I said, there are so many layers to this. Not only did Cheryl commit a terrible act but so did her son and so many innocent lives were taken away lisa matt anybody have anything they want to add
4: i just think it speaks volumes to generational violence because clearly when you grow up in a home with a violent mom i don't know if she was violent to him but obviously she was violent she was willing to kill somebody so if you're willing to do that then it makes sense that your son can grow up and also be willing to kill somebody and what, a two year span of time or what was that? It
1: was three years, but who knows how long he was thinking about all this, but whether or not Cheryl was abusive, yeah. we're not saying that, but you don't just flip the switch one day and think I'm going to murder him.
4: Matt always says like nature versus nurture. Was he destined to kill someone or is there something not? someone could have done to get out of that house loader. A lot of people come from really shitty households and abusive households that don't end up being a rooter, but like, I'm sure it predisposes. It kind of reminds me the good night sugar babe.
2: Documentary that
4: we watched. Everybody in that house is murdered. It's normalized what you do, I guess. What it, is
1: it, it, just blowing through me, Lise. It, she's talked about that so many times. You, no,
3: you have no excuse. I know. I'm No, I, I want to echo everyone's sentiment. First of all, the tragic nature of this whole thing. Justice for Ben, justice for all the victims from this case. It seems like it's only too late that we realize how kinetic and fracturable these situations can be. Literally one small thing, one domino falls, and people end up dying. And That leads to a further downward spiral. It's a shame, and it took way too long for justice to be met six years after Ben's death before she was brought on charges, but it's also not as easy to convict somebody as we always like to think. You know, once we find the person who's responsible, it's not as easy to just turn around and be like, well, it was them. And in some cases, we've seen that's good. In this case, it's a shame that it wasn't figured out sooner, but... I also think, like Lisa said, there's no way to determine ahead of time, but you have to hope for some resolution in these cases.
1: A point that Lisa was touching on generational violence. Did Greg think the only way to solve this issue that he didn't want to deal with was by murder? Obviously on a much different level, but relationships. I feel like you learn how to be in a relationship because of the model that your parents set for you. And in some instances, that's good. And in some instances, that's bad. Sometimes you can say, this is the way I saw this being handled. And I know I'm going to handle it a different way. But it seems that if Cheryl kind of had that attitude, that it definitely reflected onto Greg and is a shame and unfortunate.
3: This was a very interesting case that I had not heard of. And Lindsay, thanks for coming on and shedding some personal insight to it as well, especially touching on who the victim was. I really appreciate that.
2: Yeah, uh, I think
4: more of
3: that.
2: Glad to come on. Yeah. Yep. So this
4: was great. To have you. and
3: come oh, back again.
4: Yeah. Anytime. I really think it's an important perspective to have because we had a first cell connection and not often do we get to hear from outside documentaries about the victim that fell. So that was really cool that you were mm-hmm. able to bring that. And I'm so sorry for your family's loss as well because I can't imagine losing one of my friends. It's a big loss.
2: Yeah. I'm glad I was able, and I agree, normally documentaries, and I know I feel like people always say the same thing, but just hearing my dad, you know, Ben was one of the good ones, and it's so sad what happened. Hopefully, his child is doing well as an adult and, you know, escaping that cycle like we talked about.
1: Yeah, we can only hope for the best. I cannot give enough credit to Snaps because I knew Lindsay had this connection for a while, but... Only recently did I dig into it and didn't realize how complex this case was. So definitely check that out. Snapped season 16, episode seven. And this goes back to the thing I always heard, about. I don't know that it has a fancy title, but it definitely is like Cheryl Kunkel and focuses on her. You no, know, like this is about Ben. This is about Kaylee. This is about Kristen. Fuck Cheryl. Anyway, that's my soapbox.
3: Doc Farrell, man. Can't yeah. be it any better than that. I'm just yeah. saying.
4: Well, write, review, subscribe. (laughs) Come on.
1: Do you like things? We love to have guests, so hit us up. And it's not scary.
4: Everyone thinks it's scary and it's not scary. I have another one of our old guests here with me right now. And he will tell you it's not scary. It's not scary. Lindsay can tell you it's not scary. It was scary. No. (laughs) But yeah, thanks everybody for joining us today. And Lindsay, seriously, come back for more. It's fun having different perspectives on our just Joel's I. Love it. Well, thank you, everybody, and thank you, Joel, Matt, and Lindsay, for this really crazy episode and really sad. And again, keep an eye in your neighbors because something going on.
3: We don't even know, man. We don't yeah, even no, know. That
4: is a lot of serial killings, apparently. So uh, we do want to know like that. One, so we'll end on that
3: <laughs> I plead the fifth.
4: All right. Well, have a good night, day, afternoon, whatever it is where you're listening. Thank you for joining us today, Emily.
3: Y'all come back now. You here?
4: <laughs> All righty. Bye bye.